This episode of Radio Vet Nurse was proudly brought to you by Zilkeen. Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast with your host, Kat Robinson. You're listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast for vet nurses where we tell our story. I'm your host, Kat Robinson. Vet nursing can be a tough gig, and yet we absolutely love it. So when it comes to vet nurses, who are we? How do we achieve greatness? How do we cope with the more challenging parts of our job? Radio Vet Nurse is our way to start a dialogue around these questions and to create a space where we can tell our story. Each episode, you'll hear from a different vet nurse about their personal experiences in life and in vet nursing. In this episode, I interviewed someone who I really admire. When I was at the VNCA conference in 2015, Amy Newfield was the international keynote speaker. After her first lecture, I was hooked and went to all of them. Her energy and knowledge really fueled the vet nurse in me, and I was inspired to make a lot of positive changes back at ReadyVet. Amy is a veterinary technician specialist in emergency and critical care and a project manager for Blue Pearl. She's mainly focused on large-scale training initiatives, but also has some really interesting involvement with the social worker team there. My impression of Amy from 2015 was of a vet tech with incredible medical knowledge and practical skills. And that she definitely is. But what I now know about Amy is that she's also really passionate about soft skills, like how to be part of a healthy team and ways to harness our compassion in the face of adversity. This other dimension of Amy was just another thing to love. And I'm now more of a fangirl than ever. Hi, Amy. Welcome to Radio Vet Nurse. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here this morning. It's my absolute pleasure to have you on here. Now, do you listen to any podcasts? So not religiously. If I'm listening to a podcast, it's because someone usually sent it to me and it's medical and of is, is of interest to me. So that's when I typically play a podcast, but not frequently. Okay. And you'll listen to like a specific episode or something that they've recommended. Yes. Yes. It's usually something that has, you know, uh, made them really excited or there's some new cutting edge technology or something that they think will make me excited. And that's when I'll, I'll usually listen to it. Good stuff. There are some great um, technical ones out there, particularly for, I believe you work in, in emergency. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There are some great yeah. ones out there. Excellent. And where are you from and where do you currently live? Yes, yeah, so I am from the state of Pennsylvania in the United States, which is uh, below New York. But now I live north of New York in a state called Massachusetts. And how did you get your foot in the door with being a veterinary technician? Uh, yeah, so I am the cliche person to enter veterinary medicine. Even when I was in, a, you know, a young girl, I was the person who was collecting frogs and trying to save butterflies and, um, you know, anything and everything I was trying to get my hands on. And at the age of nine, I asked my parents if I could apply to veterinary school. And at the time, being in the 80s, they actually had to mail away and request an application. Obviously, <laughs> no intention of actually paying an application fee and sending it in at that age. But um, they did appease me and send away to the University of Pennsylvania Veterinary Medical School for an application for me. So I've <laughs> always known I was going to work with animals. Oh, excellent. 
And where, what, what was your first big break? What was your first job? Yeah, so I went to school um, in the 90s, so I guess that makes me old. And upon graduation, I applied to a variety of different jobs, all in general practice. And my very first uh, job full-time was a small general practice outside of the city of Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, that was owned by a um, uh, mom and a dad and their son was actually the veterinarian so oh that's lovely yeah and did you stay long in the general sort of field when did you move into emergency I did so I stayed there was a fantastic practice and I actually still keep in touch with the people there 20 something years later so it was a great practice I was there for about six years and over the course of six years I worked myself up to becoming the manager at the hospital and I really learned a lot uh, and And eventually, I left the practice simply because, for me, I had sort of uh, reached the top in terms of my knowledge. I just found myself not growing, and I'm always Mm -hmm. someone who likes a challenge. So I found myself really resonating with emergency cases. I found them challenging and, and, um, you know, interesting. I wanted to know more about them. Why were they doing what they were doing? And so I made the tough decision to jump into specialty medicine um, thereafter. So, and have never gone back to general practice since. So, but I did love it. I did love it. It was a wonderful educational opportunity. And for me, it's where I found my passion. So I think it's a great place to start because, um, you know, you can get a bit of a taste of, of everything and, and also, you know, you typically are helping with so many routine surgeries and that sort of thing, which can help you um, jump into emergency and be able to assist with, you know, GDVs and cesareans and that sort of thing. I imagine once you're sort of um, really com- comfortable with the basic procedures. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, I recommend that to a lot of new graduates because a lot of them want to go into specialty medicine. You know, emergency medicine sounds exciting and cool and, you know, internal medicine, you think you're going to get to deal with almost all the rare complicated diseases and high-end surgeries. And it, it really is interesting, but I think that general practice is the ability to learn all of those basic skill sets really well and to really start diving into what is your passion. Because I find so many people come into specialty medicine and it's not what they thought it was going to be. You don't see healthy animals. You don't get to Mm. see routine cases. And, you know, I think it's important to, to hone in those those general practice skills, you know, because once you decide Mm -hmm. to jump out of general practice, you don't get to practice. I, I, you know, I, it's funny because I just got a new dog two years ago and when he was a puppy and I literally had to look up a vaccine schedule because (laughs) I didn't know what to do with this puppy in terms of Mm. routine care. So I think that that's really important because you get this, you know, great set of really niche skills, but you, you forget all the other skills once you get into specialty medicine. So, yeah, absolutely. You do start niching down and you're like, what do we use to worm animals again? I'm <laughs> sure there's a tablet. Exactly. And where do you work at the moment? What's your role there and what are you doing from day to day? Yeah, so I work for Blue Pearl Veterinary Partners. It is a 
large company within the United States and it is specialty only medicine so none of our practices do any general practice so no spays no neuters we mm-hmm. um, you know have just emergency hospitals or we have emergency and specialty so the one that I work in is in primarily is in Waltham Massachusetts but we have a second location in Massachusetts as well in Charlestown and sometimes I will pull some floor shifts there in 2015 I took a larger role with Blue Pearl. So currently I'm a project manager for Blue Pearl focused on training and my role is is very interesting. I'm so excited because I get to do so many different things, but I focus on large-scale training initiatives. I focus on um we have uh, in our employees can actually get a lot of their college education paid for through an online university program that's approved through the EVMA. So I help to manage that program. And then most excitedly, I'm super excited because in the last six months, I've started working with the social worker team for Blue Pearl. And so social work is anything and everything having to do with the social aspect of being a human being. And at least in the United States, it's it's very common to know that social workers are, uh, you know, can help you with compassion fatigue and burnout, which is obviously an epidemic in all of our veterinary mm. hospitals. So, for my aspect of it, um, you know, the other thing that social work brings to the table is communication between team members. Um, you know, helping teams cope with interpersonal issues, client communication skills, and so. Because I've I've managed three other teams in my career, um, I they did me the huge honor of allowing me to be part of their team. So I'm I get to go into hospitals and help to work with the teams and uh, really you know focus on what it means being a healthy team. So I, I'm excited about that, and then I still get to play on the hospital floor sometimes. So it's great. I have an amazing job. <laughs> That's a real credit to the company that they're dedicating. Uh, resources to the the social worker element and to building teams and making sure people are operating you know in a healthy manner and and interacting with each other and with clients in a healthy manner that that's really proactive and great to see yeah it's a it's been amazing blue pearl likes to set themselves apart like that and so blue pearl is actually owned by mars um, company, the M&M candy, everybody knows Mars owns M&M. So, um, so yeah, they actually have a very large animal and veterinary subset. In fact, it's larger than their candy company. And yeah, so a lot of people don't know that. So, um, the family is true animal lovers. And so, uh, Blue Pearl was purchased by Mars actually, uh, in 2015 and mm-hmm. it's been a wonderful relationship but they also own uh, several other large companies within the United States VCAs being one of them pet partners being another and then Banfield being the other one and they actually own now two corporations in the United Kingdom as well so they actually own a lot of veterinary hospitals but uh, Blue Pearl is the first one to actually have uh, social workers for all of their Blue Pearl hospitals which we're really excited about but now Mars has seen what we're doing and we're trying to get social work into the Banfield hospitals the VCA hospitals Mm. so it is really exciting and it again like you said it really says something about the company that we're trying to figure out how to create better healthy teams because we work in such a stressful work environment. 
Absolutely. And I and I think it should say something to other smaller and medium-sized veterinary businesses as well because these bigger companies don't make those decisions lightly because they've often got shareholders and they've got a fiduciary duty to the shareholders to make money for the shareholders and it really does come down to the nuts and bolts of the bottom line and as much as it's a warm and fuzzy lovely thing to do they would have had to have done their due diligence and said if we put this much money into providing a social worker team it's got to pay off and obviously they've been able to determine that it it does pay off because you're not burning your people out and turning them over which is one of the biggest expenses of running a business so from a non-emotional viewpoint I think other businesses can say well if a big company like this that's crunching the numbers and doing the maths is finding out that this is worthwhile maybe we should uh, make an allowance in our budget to think about it more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and that's exactly what happened, right? Because you have to look at those big picture items when you put teams of people together and start, you know, sending them into hospitals. How are we going to measure a return on investment? That's what a big company does. And yeah. to your point, you know, them seeing a benefit of it, it's it's obvious it's there and you know it's been so wonderful that they've embraced the social worker team and focusing on trying to create those better healthier teams and certainly there's no perfect you know um you Mm. know way to go about trying to help teams but um, we're trying to figure out what works in most of our hospitals and how we can make differences and especially i think right now if we can even save one person's life, you know, that's, that's a win. I mean, we're in a, we're in a time right now where it is on social media almost every day of somebody, Mm. you know, um, we're saying goodbye to somebody and it's really a sad time. So we have to do something about it. It is, uh, it's always been a problem, but I think thanks to social media and I think also thanks to the openness of a, of a different generation to have a conversation about it. We're now having these conversations and very real ones. So, yeah. There are major influences in in the veterinary industry like Dr. Andy Rourke and Dr. Dave Nickel who are speaking out about it and being very proactive too. So I think it is the time for agitation and change and yeah, it's, it's hard to ignore. As you're saying, it's, it's all over social media and I can hear how excited you are about the social worker team component of your job and I can imagine you love being on the floor as well. Are you able to pick your favorite part of your job or? Yeah, um, I mean, because I work in emergency, the favorite part of my job is always saving a patient's life. I I Mm. particularly love a super complicated case that you – it comes in really sick, the owner's distraught, and then you get to – save that animal's life there is no greater feeling than reuniting that pet with the owner and it's not just about the pet it's really about the client as well which is something that as I've gotten older as well as been in this profession longer the I I didn't know that it was also going to be about clients you know in my younger years Mm -hmm. I came into this business focused on I want to save animal lives and I think we've all said this I like pets better than people and that's Mm -hmm. why I work in veterinary medicine you know but the longer you're in this profession 
the more you really embrace that client animal, you know, that owner animal bond that, that yeah. is just such the most amazing thing to be able to give back to a human being because, you know, they share that same bond with their pet that you do with your pet. So, yeah, I think you're right. It, initially, when you first start out, you think, I wish the owners could just put the animal through a little hole in the wall with a little note attached saying what the symptoms are and what the history is. And then we could just pop the animal back through the hole in the wall and, and not see them. But then the, the longer that you're that you're um, working, I think the more you really um, begin to thrive on the owner interaction. So I totally hear you on that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. You know, in my younger years, I was like, I don't even know why pets can't drive themselves to the hospital. (laughs) These clients are driving me crazy. But it's interesting because as I think, at least for myself and uh, in talking to some of my colleagues who've also been in the profession for, you know, over 20 years, as you're in it longer, you gain more compassion on on mm. things and and that's what has really been interesting for me professionally you would think you would become jaded and hardened mm. but i actually have found myself gaining compassion and really wanting to impact the owner on the same level that i do for the pet because that's what it's really all about in the end I agree. I've had um, new staff members at various stages in having our business. And I've also had, since I've had this podcast, I've had people reaching out to me on social media who are new um, into being veterinary nurses or technicians saying, how do you cope with when an owner won't, you know, pay to have this treatment that um, is really, you know, basic and affordable. And instead they choose euthanasia. And I offered to take over the care of the animal and have them signed over to me, or doesn't that make you angry? And I really now just say to them like, no, because I have no idea what's going on in that person's life. And um, obviously there are financial constraints, but maybe they're nursing like a terminal relative as well. And there's sickness, there's enough sickness in their life or, you know, you you just, um, the more, the more that you're, that you're working, I think in the industry, the more you have compassion for people and you learn a bit about different people's stories and go, ah, gosh, what you're dealing with is crazy. Like, of course you made that decision. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's it. You know, in my in my younger years, I did get very frustrated and I think, you know, it does weigh on your soul when owners make decisions that you disagree with. But the longer you're in this profession, you start to do two things. You start to reframe your mindset and you assume good intention. And I think that those are kind of words that everyone should live by because if you can assume good intention and recognize that it's not about you that there's probably some bigger picture that of what's going on in their life and you don't know all of the little you know nuts and bolts of what's happening in their life mm-hmm. if you if you can kind of assume that good intention and recognize that there's probably a greater picture you're not seeing um, it is it gives you that compassion and that's a that's a big deal in this profession because we can walk around judging everybody <laughs> and yeah. be angry all the time about how you know uh, we felt like they didn't do right by their powder we felt like they should do more they should stop screaming at us about money because they should have money you know mm. um, or we can, take a step back and think, you know what, I've been upset about money in the past and I can't Mm. imagine if my dog or my cat had been hit by a car and I didn't have the funds to treat them how I would act, you know, or Mm -hmm. 
you know, I've had this going on in my life and been able to, you know, have had a hard time to, to cope with it. And so again, it's that reshaping and that, you know, assuming good intention is, is really key to being a good human being, I think. (laughs) I think that's a great motto to live by. And I think it's uh, like an antidote to being jaded, as you say, to, you know, to being crushed by thinking, God, what's wrong with people? Um, If you just assume good intention and that people are usually, you know, 99.9% of the time coming from a great place and you don't need to know all of the details of that place and what's going on, um, then yeah, life can be a little easier to accept on those, um, those trench days. Oh gosh, absolutely. And you know, you think about it, every owner who ever got a pet, they love those animals. You know, there's not somebody, it might seem like they're a little hardened or, but maybe that's how they're dealing with it. You know, the person who comes in to say goodbye to their 12 year old dog who says, Oh, well he was just a dog. This is their coping mechanism, right? They, they had that dog for 12 years. They're probably dying inside. Um, but they're, playing the tough cookie routine <laughs> just like if that owner heard the dark humor that we sort of exhibit when oh. we're you know given certain news they might look at us and go does that person have a black soul like um but no it's our coping mechanism and everybody has them so oh yes absolutely we yeah, we all have to have coping mechanisms to deal with the things that that we deal with on a daily basis so yeah now, since your roles changed a bit more into this training and education position, are you still doing um, emergency around the clock sort of different crazy hours or are you usually working in the day? Because I'm wanting to know your routine when you get up to go to work. And is that usually in the morning or? Yes. So I do I, because I'm a little spoiled. I get to pick my shifts um, that I can work and based, it's on based on what the hospital needs are. So they fill it with their full-timers and their part-timers and shifts that are left over I get to pick from. So <laughs> I still do try to pull the occasional overnight, uh, mm-hmm. though overnights never agreed with me. I try really hard to still pull overnights. My schedule it used to be when I was managing the team, it used to be two overnights in one day, um, including weekends and, and holidays and those sorts of things. So I, uh, I used to do those things all the time, but overnights never agreed with me. But I love doing overnights. There's some magic that happens on the overnight shift, and anyone who mm. works an overnight shift knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but it's, it's a weird, <laughs> wonderful family on the overnight shift. Uh, so I still yeah. do try to pull the occasional overnight shift, mainly just so I can feel like I can do it. The the current issue is is that if I do that, then the conference calls and the responsibilities that I have of managing, you know, the college program and the students in the college program and then the social worker team, um, the next day everybody's up wanting to do conference calls and I'm trying to yeah. sleep. So, <laughs> yeah. but I'm, I'm happy to do those on occasion. So, but I do definitely pull more day shifts than anything else if I'm working on the floor, um, just so that I can still function. And uh, when I'm pulling day shifts, I try to tell the people in my regular job that I will not be available at all because I'm working on the floor and my attention needs to be on the floor. I can't be taking conference calls. I can't be, you know, trying to deal with emails. I try to sneak emails in so that they don't pile up for the next day. But um, yeah, I do mostly, mostly weekdays. I admittedly don't pick up a lot of weekend shifts. (laughs) 
episode. Yeah. Um, which I feel slightly guilty about because I'm an emergency technician at heart. And so it does like make me a little sad to say no. But I also, one of the things that you realize when you get older is you have to find personal boundaries and you can't do mm. everything for everyone because that mm -hmm. is how you burn out. So yeah. actually I've been a VTS for over 15 years now. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So I think you do get to after 15 years be like, okay, guys, I'm just going to pick the night shifts that I want to do just kind of for the novelty of it. And otherwise, you know, I've got my stuff that needs doing in the day. So yeah, it is hard, though. I will say that there are times where it is way more fun to work on the emergency floor because there yeah. is like, you know, there's in a particular month, I have to just there are about two days of that particular month where my job revolves around Excel spreadsheets, um, which is yep. really like the worst thing on earth. I don't know who invented the Excel spreadsheet, but it's pretty <laughs> much if I if I die and end up in a place of hell, it will be made of Excel, <laughs> Excel spreadsheets everywhere. And I have to analyze data all day long. That would be my nightmare because those days, <laughs> some people really enjoy that. For me, that is like just it's eye numbing to just stare at tiny yeah. little grid spaces but yeah there are moments where I'm like god what am I doing I should just go play with animals yeah <laughs> but, I <yeah>. know <laughs> it's it's got its pros and cons there are times where like when I get to go in with the social worker team and I get to work with teams and we get to make an, a hospital-wide impact on that team and they feel less stressed and they feel more connected to each other and they have better communication skills and they truly are happier that is is just so exciting to me um and then there's other days where it's excel spreadsheets and I'm like what am I doing <laughs> <laughs> I know I know I have a love hate with excel like I feel like they are eye-wateringly um horrific at times as well but they're just so damn useful for tracking things right? as well so <laughs> I, I mean agree. I made my whole team do an excel course because um there are so many things we need it for so and you know if one one person mucks up a cell or a formula you're like ah where's the mistake so I was like you are all learning excel I'm sorry don't hate me it is a very useful tool I do recommend everyone learning excel and and you're right and you know what it is kind of every so often it becomes super rewarding when you stare at tiny little grid spaces for hours on end and then you filter out data and you get data points you're like yeah this is why we do it <laughs> yeah and I know you're a big fan of finding trends and patterns and everything because I was actually in Melbourne for the VNCA conference in 2015 when you were the international keynote and I loved that a lot of your presentations like was it naughty veins or bad veins yes the bad veins yeah <laughs> bad veins I love that they were focused around like you just getting in your team's face and filming them every time they <laughs> <Yes>. um annulated <laughs> yes. a patient's cephalic vein or all, all sorts of crazy veins as I learned um and that you were kind of like oh and I found out from filming you know the hundred occasions that we did this over this period that sometimes this happens and most often the issue you'll encounter is this and sometimes people breach sterility and they get in big trouble and so you were like pumped I could tell that you were you you had analyzed data and you had found patterns and you were like yes there are answers here yeah, absolutely. I do love it. And I think, you know, um, my team still like, even though I, I don't work as many shifts as I used to, I still bring in the camera. And it's so funny because 
there'll be a camera sitting on the shelf and you know that I'm in during the day because that's it's I constantly grab it for almost everything and every so often I hear somebody like whose camera is that and they'll say oh Amy's Amy's working Amy's she's just gonna start recording stuff (laughs) just you just have to go with it and then you can hear all the other people like preface don't worry you won't she never like puts your voice in there so you can say whatever (laughs) and she's gonna make sure she never gets your face so (laughs) those are the rules so yeah they're really they're really tolerant of my high energy insanity when it comes to uh, recording everything for the purpose of education later. <laughs> it was. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was fantastic. Thank so you. yeah, I um, I, if and I and I do film bits and pieces, and we do for our workplace too. And I know how much time and energy goes into then like p- pulling the data off and labeling it and sifting through it. So yes. I commend your energy on that. Thank front. you very much. Yeah, no, it's wonderful, and they have just been the most fantastic group to allow me to come in and just film doing you know everything and anything and it's it's great so yeah yeah that's good and so in the morning you're up you're going for a run are you having a coffee what are you doing before you head into work yeah so I'm a tea drinker which is unusual for people in the United States so I confuse people on that so it's very English <laughs> it is right yeah I love and we don't have high tea over here so um, I do like when I visited Australia someone took me to high tea which is I think one of the most wonderful things in the whole world I wish we had high tea here, but we don't. So it's amazing. Yeah, the afternoon tea thing is fantastic. Um, so I could spend all day eating little tiny sandwiches. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's great. So yeah, I am addicted to tea. Uh, I don't think anybody wants to see me on a full cup of coffee because I do have a lot of energy, which is great because I run with my dogs in the woods. And then yep. um, usually if I am working in an, in the office, you know, I have a little bit of flexibility time. If I don't and I have to get into the hospital for an actual shift, my shift starts at 7 a.m. It ends at 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. or 9 p.m., whatever Whoa. time it ends. Um, so, but it's supposed to end around 7 p.m., which means I'm usually out of the building by 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. So we work 12 to 13-hour shifts. And then I drive home and am exhausted. And I think at that point, all you can do is um, shove some food in your in your face and then go to bed. So that's, yeah. that's about it. Most of us How live many- pretty far away from the hospital. So we commute anywhere from the average is probably about 40 minutes up to an hour, hour and 15 one-way commutes. So. What's your commute? My commute's about 40 minutes, so. This is where you need podcasts. Right? I know. People have said that to me. I end up just vegging out on music and, and sometimes an audio book too. Sometimes an audio book. So apart from your tea drinking, what weekly or daily habit makes your life better? So definitely the trail running because it's something that I, I do for myself. I think not only to relieve stress, but I feel better when I do it. It's actually really relaxing to me. I know that sounds crazy to people who don't run, but it's really just relaxing. I can set my mind at ease and I think about many other things other than, you know, any stresses. But it's also something I get to do for my dogs because they're high energy. And if I didn't take them for a run, I would never hear the end of it. <laughs> definitely. It's enrichment 101 for certain breeds what breeds and ages have you got yeah so I have a border collie who's seven and a half and then I have a mini Australian shepherd who's a little over two so they're high energy crazies (laughs) your is your border collie showing any signs of slowing down or still nutcase I mean 
only because I know him, he's slowed down. But for everybody else who doesn't know him, they think he's insane. And he has as much energy as he does when he was younger. But he's way more manageable now than when he was younger. (laughs) Yeah, because I've got a working dog too. I've got a a, like a Kelpie something. And um, he's nearly 12. And he's just starting to slow down. But um, he did give us some reprieve starting from when he probably got to about nine or ten um and now he's just getting into old man and to be honest it's a bit of a relief yes yeah yeah i'm sure at some point i'll feel a little bit of a relief too but right now i enjoy his high energy craziness and do you have any strange habits or superstitions oh goodness well i think we all have veterinary superstitions so immediately my mm-hmm. my brain went to veterinary superstition like there's the rule of 3 you know it does seem awfully canny that no mm. matter what hospital you work at you get a hit by car, then you get a second hit by car, you know the third one's coming, right? And (laughs) same with urinary obstructed cats. You have one, you have two, you know the third obstructed cat is coming. Just get everything ready, you know it's coming. (laughs) Exactly. And then, you know, certainly we all pull out two IV catheters. If you don't pull out two IV catheters, you're never going to get the first one in. That's just not how it works. So at least in in the United States, it's very common that when you're setting up for an IV catheter, you pull two out. Um, I think that that's a little bit of a superstition as well don't be cocky or the universe will get you correct you can't talk about the vein that's another rule you can't (laughs) you know the the new technician who comes into the hospital who says you know you roll off the vein for them and they say oh that vein looks really good this should be easy to get a catheter and you don't say those things because those are also superstitious things so um I don't have anything major I think in my life as far as superstition goes I probably do I just can't think of it my brain is going towards veterinary superstitions (laughs) definitely and I think you probably have to have more superstitions around veins as well where you are because it's so cold like some of the things that you were pointing out um, in your presentation at the conference in Melbourne were ways to troubleshoot I guess when it's really cold and you've got um, (laughs) constricted veins that you're dealing with but you know I'm in far north Queensland where it's pretty much summertime year round so um, yeah you would have to be really particular too when you're already fighting against all of the odds on a freezing day with a old patient with low blood pressure and they're freezing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, when you have constricted veins because it's uh, zero degrees Celsius, you need to <laughs> you need to figure out how to warm those veins up. So or slap the person that says these actually look pretty good for <laughs> a geriatric. Yeah, you're not allowed to say that. <laughs> we literally like no stop talking. What have you just done? <laughs> Another superstition in veterinary medicine is you can't in emergency medicine you can't say oh today's going really well we'll all get out on time you're not allowed to say that no you're not allowed to say even if you think it you're not allowed to verbally say it to anyone so yeah everybody immediately just texts anyone they're meant to see after work going I'm gonna be late yeah I'm gonna be late because somebody said today's going well (laughs) so yeah 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 exactly funny funny little things like that that we all do universally right And I know some people who work in emergency who have said that they poke the emergency gods because they don't want to be bored. So they almost use those superstitions to invoke the madness. Yeah. Nope. I, I know some of those people who, who start speaking about how the day is going and then the rest of us say naughty words about them. <laughs> <laughs> and can you think of a purchase made by you or your employer that's positively impacted your vet nurse life in recent memory? You know, I... And granted, I'm biased. It's not really a purchase, but I think that, you know, when you look, when you work for a big company, you know, aligning 
the right people in the right positions is a big deal. And I really do mm. think that has been revolutionary when it comes to the the creating healthy teams in our organization is really embracing social workers. Um, I, you know, I think we as an organization weren't really sure how social workers would help us. We, um, so the, the social worker that's heading the organization social worker team actually came to us through an acquisition in Pittsburgh. Um, she actually, that hospital actually employed her first and then Blue Pearl bought the hospital and the hospital has over 350 employees. It's one of the largest hospitals. Um, Whoa. Yes. Uh, one, uh, 350 people in one veterinary hospital. It's enormous. It's our largest hospital. Mm. And so with purchasing this hospital, they said, well, one person we have on our team is a social worker. And I think Blue Pearl is an organization said, well, tell us about who this is and what they do for you. And embracing that and, and, you know, not getting rid of it, but also magnifying it and saying, you know, well, this sounds amazing. We want this in all of our hospitals. Um, I think, you know, it's not really a purchase, but it, it kind of mm -hmm. is because since that time now there's been additional social workers added to the team. And so that's, that's a, a large hospitals organization wide response to trying to, to help a larger problem, you know, but I mean, mm. you know, there's certainly little tools and uh, useful pieces of equipment. Like I am in love and actually in 2015 talked about it, the EZIO gun, it's an intra osteous gun. Um, so okay. it's a mechanical drill gun for placing IO catheters, which doesn't sound very exciting, but when you work in emergency medicine, um, previous to owning this gun, you would have to do cut downs. You would really struggle mm. to gain venous access. And now uh, we're spoiled rotten. So when we're struggling to gain venous access, you can just drill right into the intraosseous, which is just as effective as, as getting a vein, a catheter into a mm -hmm. vein. So um, there's fun little tools like that as well. But the I think, again, because I'm biased into my current role, I just look at the positive experience that a social worker team has on a mm. hospital and really changing lives and you know veterinary technicians veterinary assistants and and veterinarian and front of desk lives in making their jobs yeah. better workplace environment like that beats getting any fancy piece of equipment <laughs> just exactly. actually someone another guest that I interviewed Haley she works in emergency over here in Australia and her answer to this question was also like investing in a position within their business which was the client care representatives to sort of manage the front line of I guess dealing with clients um, so and, and I actually took her up on that and eventually when I was looking around at my own team recently and I thought well we need another support person but everybody wants to be out the back nursing so that's just going to reduce access to nursing for my current team what I really need is a CCR which is what this person raved about so that's what we'll get um, and so yeah you're not the first person to say it's been a human resource I'm interested to know what qualifications or background the social worker team um, individuals have like what industry or um, education background are they coming from yeah so um they are licensed social workers. So in the in this country, you can go to school and then you can get a license in social work. And so their background, the, the woman who is heading the social worker team for Blue Pearl, her background actually is in um, children. So uh, that's where she came before she took on the Pittsburgh hospital location. 
jobs. So she dealt with, you know, children in abusive homes and children in in terrible situations. Um, But she also, her, I mean, she has an extensive background. And so the other thing that she did was uh, work with, um, you know, husband, wife, social worker issues and things like that. So she has a huge background in family um, social work, which is great. And then uh, you know, wanted something different and uh, saw that there was actually a job posting for a veterinary social work and was like, I don't know what this is. What are these, you know, what do these veterinarians have to be stressed about? Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. My two-year-old dog, I'm going to move out of the room, has decided <laughs> right now to pick up a squeaky toy. So um, I'm sure anyone listening is laughing because we've all been there when you're trying to be serious yeah. and here comes this, you know, happy young dog running around with a squeaky toy right now. So no, buddy, he's now following me in the room. Get get out of, out, out, out. All right. It's adorable. It's a noise we're all familiar with. I was like, oh, this is happening right now. So cute. (laughs) Uh, So They're like small children, right? That's why we love them. They They just make you laugh. Um, So yeah, she decided she wanted to do something a little different, interviewed for the position. And I think that the hospital wasn't, aware of all the things that she could bring but also yeah. I think she wasn't aware of how she was going to be able to contribute so over the the years that she was in Pittsburgh location uh, she actually got to develop a true social worker position there and it wasn't just about the team it ended up manifesting into the clients as well because when you have a hospital of that size think about think about how stressful it is for a veterinarian or a veterinary nurse to deal with a client who's truly grieving over their pets. All clients grieve. Mm. Um, and mo- and obviously almost all of it's very appropriate response, right? But you do have those mm-hmm. clients sometimes where they're, they are physically struggling and mm. you spend those, you know, minutes, hours with them, holding their hands and trying to find grief counselors for them and Mm -hmm. talking to them because they don't know that they can go on with their lives or they don't know how they're going to handle being Mm -hmm. away without their pets. And they're fearful of what's going to happen when they go home, right? And so Mm -hmm. you, we've all had those clients. It's a true struggle and you can see it in their eyes and your heart breaks for them. Imagine Mm -hmm. now having a social worker on hand, right? Mm -hmm. What an impact, not only for that client to have a trained professional to come into that room and say, you know, let me talk to you about grief and let's talk about those feelings, you know, but also what a huge deal for that veterinary hospital, those workers to be able to Mm -hmm. feel that sense of relief to say, we have a trained professional who can handle Mm -hmm. this better than me, because I think that's one of the things that we, you know, don't do well in veterinary medicine. You know, we, we love pets better than people and we're trained to deal with animals and medical emergencies and how are we Mm going to fix this pet? But even in, in veterinary school, no one really coaches us on the fact that we are also going to need to be a support system for these clients. We need to be a support system for when they're grieving, for when they're scared, when, you know, when they get a new puppy and they have no idea what a new puppy needs, (laughs) you know, we have to be this support system for them, for the pet, for our team. And it's overwhelming. Mm. And so when you have a social worker on hand, um, you know, she ended up finding herself in that role of not only helping the 
team, but also helping these clients. And so when they really were dealing with a client struggling, they'd say, hey, we've got this client struggling in this room. And she'd go in and she'd have the time and the knowledge mm. and the training to handle this person. And that's a huge deal. It is huge just for the client, but also for the team, as you were sort of touching on, for the team to be shielded from that because yeah, we're not trained for that and it's emotionally exhausting. And I don't know if you have them, but we have EAPs in some of the veterinary businesses, employee assistance program. And we've got one where you um, tell your employees, this is the psychology clinic or um, these are the psychologists that we have this EAP with. You just ring them up and say that this is where you work and you can go and have a confidential appointment with them and discuss anything. And we just get an invoice with a, a reference number that's doesn't identify the employee and so that for me is a great investment for our employees but mainly it shields myself and other managers in the team as well because it can be a lot to have your juniors and your seniors or anyone coming to you saying this is happening at home or this is why I keep coming to work late or this is why I can't finish this or I stuffed up that and you end up kind of being a counsellor to your employees and then you're being a counsellor to your clients and clients are um, leaning on employees. So I think um, I've seen the capacity in which we can shield by providing um, professionals and I've seen the benefit that can bring but I think the next level would be then directing it towards you know shielding your team from these clients who as you as you say need um legitimate support like we know that the loss of a pet is like the loss of a child or a parent or a sibling like it's full on yeah absolutely and in fact um you know there's so many studies that have come out more and more that that say you know that just so many people actually grieve more for a loss of a pet mm. um you know uh and because there is that huge connection this animal has never done anything wrong to them <laughs> and um yeah. they've always supported them right so um yeah. it's it is a huge bond and it's great that people are recognizing that yeah we we also have EAPs in our hospitals mm, um, right and they are a great resource but having a team member who's part of your team that the team is familiar with is, is a huge mm. thing. So yeah. He knows the ins and outs. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It gets to know the team and really gets to know how the hospital works. And it's normal for in human medicine to have social workers in the United States. It's a very common practice. All, all of our hospitals have social workers. Um, they have social workers for the hospital team, but they also have social workers for the hospitalized patients. And so um, when you go wow. in for, you know, even a, with a medical emergency, they'll, um, you know, say, do you think you need a social worker? And that's very normal. But in veterinary medicine, I think we're just starting to touch on what that looks like, which is, which is exciting, right? Because medicine's always changing and evolving. And my mind immediately is going to, oh, as a small general practice, we couldn't afford that, but you could share a social worker between a number of practices. Yeah. You know, you could sort of have one person that goes and visits a whole bunch of practices if you don't have the financial capacity capacity within a smaller business to have one dedicated person or you know the work for them but um, there's no reason why they can't be servicing multiple practices so I hope I really see that area grow in Australia yeah absolutely it's it's a necessity at this point I'm and you know I think we all have it you know it come to the realization we need to do something to help our teams and, and our individuals within our organization because it turns out veterinary work is really stressful. <laughs> it is, yeah, and it's surprisingly to the public, but, yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah. <laughs> 
Now, can you tell me about a time when you were able to turn defeat into victory? This could be in a personal or professional capacity. Oh, good question. Defeat into victory. Um, oh, that is a, that's a deep question. You know, I think that, I think that learning to cope, but it takes, it's not an overnight victory. Um, I think learning to reshape your mindset or handle stress better is probably mm. one of the biggest tools um, I've I've ever learned in my professional career. When I was younger, you know, you're so focused on learning skill sets. And in fact, somebody uh, just posted this. They just recently graduated from a school in the United States and they posted on a Facebook, you know, um, group page and said, what are some of the things I really should start learning in veterinary medicine? You know, I want to learn it all. What should I start learning? And a lot of people posted how to really, um, you know, get, uh, place a catheter in a, in a difficult vein or um, how to pill a cat. Ha ha ha. That's the hardest thing to learn, right? You know, <laughs> good restraint techniques. We all need good restraint techniques, right? You know, you got to mm. learn how to be able to restrain because you have to get your job done and um, doing it fear-free is, is key. And I loved all of those suggestions. But I wrote, you know, um, really learning how to deal with stress and how to find compassion in mm. a job that has a lot of stress is probably to me a skill that I, I wish we could figure out the best way to teach it because that is, you know, you learn the sometimes how to deal with those things through the worst of times, you know, it, working in emergency and we've all had these horrific stories, especially when you work 12 hour shifts. Um, the most mm. amount of euthanasias and it's not a proud badge to wear is, uh, it's just a sad badge is, um, 14 in one day. And that Gosh. was the day that I'll never forget because it's a nightmare. You're just at that point, yeah. it's just pet after pet after pet. And at the end of 14, at the end of standing on your feet all 12 hours, uh, you have to go home and you still have to have a soul and you have to yeah. be able to function. And it's really hard to even smile at the end of that day. You just drive home and you're numb. And so yeah. in the face of that adversity, how do you come back and do it all over again and still mm. give yourself to those clients? And what does that look like? And so I think being able to learn compassion is gives you a, a sense of peace that you can't, you can't buy and you can't, um, you know, you can't teach it. You have to figure out how to, to do that, having that sense of compassion and then also being able to be resilient and figure out how to manage your stress is really key because if you keep it all in all the time, you can't survive in this industry. And so those to me are the biggest things. I, I know that's kind of weird, but um, that's what I've learned. And it isn't an overnight thing. It takes years yeah. to learn those things. And I mean, when we're talking about pilling cats and cannulating veins, we can, they, they, these are predictable events that we know that we'll be exposed to at certain times of day, every day, and we can learn them in a predictable manner with people guiding us through. But you'd never know when you're going to have one of those days where it's the Christmas clear out and everybody wants their pet to be euthanized, but you know, before the end of your shift. Yeah, absolutely. And when you have the client who's screaming at you that you're money grubbing and you only went into this business to make money and you hate animals mm. and why do you have to charge so much? And they're literally screaming at you at the top of their lungs. It mm. is a skill set that in that face of adversity, being able to take that 
take a deep breath in and have true compassion for that person, yeah, you can use that in everyday life from moving forward. And that to me is probably one of the biggest things that, you know, I, I look back and I think this is, it's not just a skill, but it's made my life so much better in so many different aspects where I can even look at, you know, interpersonal relationships with my family or my friends. And when they stress me out, I have that ability to be like, you know what, let's give a little bit of compassion to the situation and take a step back and not get into a heated argument over it. Um, yep. So yeah, in the face of adversity, to come away with these like soft skills and being a better person, that's that to me is the biggest win because you can take those and apply them everywhere, right? <laughs> I agree. And I think it, it can almost be just like you wouldn't go to um, put an IV catheter in without grabbing two catheters because, you know, that would be cocky and just, you <laughs> yes. know, tempting the universe. You can also arm yourself metaphorically for those situations. Like I'm about to go into this difficult conversation with this client. I know that they were already a difficult client who was a little bit angry or, you know, going through the motions of grief earlier. What is my metaphorical second catheter that that I'm going to grab and just have in my pocket? Like it's just going to be this deep breath and just reminding myself to have compassion going into this and maybe having backup of another person who can come over and take over from me if I just need to step away. Yeah, absolutely so. So yeah, we face adversity every day. Um, how we choose to deal with it is truly only up to the one person, which is you, right? So yeah, how we how we shape our mindset, how we deal with it, it's only one person knows how, how that's going to happen, and that's you. So you have all the absolutely. power to, to respond however you want. And some of us respond yelling back at the client and screaming. <laughs> and some of, well. us, some of us walk away and maybe emotionally cry. And others of us take that moment to reshape our mindset and truly give compassion. And that's, it's a, it's not easy. I mean, it took me many years to figure it out. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that um, a lot of nurses that I speak to once I start, it surprised me at first, but nurses who have been and who've been working in the industry for like around the 10 year mark I find that that's when they start to say oh I love dealing with difficult clients because it's an opportunity to um, you know teach them a little bit about our position and where we're coming from and it's an opportunity to show them some compassion and help them through this and at some point I do think that you you can turn it in your mind and say okay this this is a threat you know on its face but it's also an opportunity so um, and then you can start to be more comfortable with those difficult situations and I certainly think um, as you said earlier assuming good intention having compassion for other people having compassion for yourself that's that second imaginary cat that are in your back pocket that, that we need to all be walking around with, I think, constantly. Yeah, absolutely. And it is funny because as I said earlier in the podcast, as you get older in this profession, one would assume that you would become more jaded and hardened because you've seen yes. more things and you've dealt with more euthanasias and you've had to deal with crazy clients every single day. But um, I have found the opposite to be true. If anything, I, I like to say that I've gained compassion and it's, it's truly mm-hmm. a gaining compassion um, in this profession. I, I think that's that's one of the most interesting things. If I could go back to my younger version of myself, I would say breathe a little bit deeper and a little bit longer (laughs) and have a little bit more reflection Um, because you'll save yourself a lot of grief, Amy. You will save yourself a lot of grief if you do that. (laughs) Well, I think that's fantastic advice for everyone. Um, On that note, we might just take a quick break. Are you happy if we come back shortly? 
Absolutely. Support for Radio Vet Nurse comes from Zilking. It's a supplement for cats and dogs that can help with stressful or unpredictable situations. You know the ones, thunderstorms, travel, multi-cat households, all those triggers. Zilking contains alpha-cazozapine to help keep the animal calm. It's the same molecule that helps keep newborns calm after breastfeeding. It's palatable and easy to give. I mix it into my dog's food. Some behavioral issues are severe and Zilking probably won't help these, but it works well for many pets in stressful situations. Worth a try, right? Support for Radio Vet Nurse comes from you, if you like. You can help too by scoring yourself some eco-friendly and oh-so-chic Radio Vet Nurse merch. Head to my website, radiovetnurse.com, and check out my glass reusable coffee keep cup. I've also got a lightweight, shatter-resistant glass water bottle. All with Radio Vet Nurse logo, so we know we're in the club. Wink, wink. That's all. Carry on. Welcome back, Amy. What advice would you give to someone about to enter the world of vet nursing? Never stop learning. Um, You know, you come into this profession, either you go to school or maybe you're just entering in your first veterinary hospital because you are with trepidation, you love animals, you love medicine, and you want to check it out. Um, Medicine never stops growing, and it's important Mm. that you never stop growing either. Question, ask why. You should want to know every little detail of that particular patient and what is happening to that particular patient. Why -hmm. did we give that medication? Why did we give that bag of fluids? Why um, did the doctor want an x-ray of the chest? What does this look like? And um, the more that you get the knowledge, the better it's going to be for the pet yourself and the client. So, And what advice would you give to a student vet nurse or technician struggling with their studies? It does, it's well worth putting in the time and effort because when you're struggling with studies, it's hard because you don't have the patient in front of you. And there are Mm. moments where, especially, I think a lot of us struggle with things like pharmacology or math, right? Nobody loves math. Mm. Um, And you're like, why am I learning this? I promise that every little thing that you are taught in school, you're going to apply it in the actual hospital setting. And that's Mm -hmm. what makes it so awesome. And I think a lot of us are visual learners. And so in school, sometimes you don't have that visualization to understand, you know, why we did that math calculation, but it'll make a lot more sense (laughs) once you get into the veterinary hospital and you start going, oh yeah, that's why I had to learn algebra. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's well worth it. Just it's, and it's the other thing is this profession is so amazing that you definitely want to make it through school so that you can get out there and, and be the best vet nurse um, that you can possibly be because this field is fantastic. You're going to love every aspect of it. (laughs) That's it. And once you get the foundational things under your belt, it does open up a whole new world because I, I so hear you on um, the math, like I'm terrible at maths and I am also a visual learner. So I really like, even if somebody's telling me something, sometimes I have to go, whoa, 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 stop and go get a piece of paper and start like mud mapping and drawing pictures and charting it out and pointing and going, okay, now I understand you. So um, I think that it is hard when you're just sitting there looking at the books and everything, but do whatever you need to do to play to your strengths of the way that you learn and get the foundational stuff done. And then you do see it repeated and you do get to use those skills again and again and be like, ah, it was worth it. (laughs) Yes, it is worth it. That's for sure. And are there any bad or old recommendations that you hear as a vet nurse, whether from colleagues, clients that you think should be replaced with more? useful or modern information? 
Yeah, right now, I mean, there's the huge fear-free initiative, which I I think is pretty global at this point. Um, And I think that that's probably one of the biggest things. I've always had a love and a niche for dog and cat behavior. That's kind of my other side thing that I just have a true passion for. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I absolutely love it. That's why I have crazy herding breed dogs. So they they (laughs) keep me challenged. Um, But I think that with that, one of the best things that has happened, particularly in the last 10 years, is that we as veterinary professionals come into this industry because we love animals and we want to help them. And in the past, some of our restraint techniques and some of the things that we've done to these animals have actually invoked fear. And there's no question about that, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, from scruffing cats to um, heart, you know, the, the hard nylon muzzles and things like that. Now we're focused on basket muzzles. It allows our dogs to breathe. They Mm -hmm. can pant, Mm-hmm. Um, they can not yeah. be so scared we're trying to kill them uh, by closing their mouth shut when they're the most stressed out they've ever been. And we say, you can't pant, um, yeah, you know, just breathe heavily through your nose holes. Um, good luck with that. Not to mention overheating as yeah, well. Yeah, right. And so we have done these things and not recognize that maybe we're putting more stress on in a stressful situation. And now there's such a movement and such a wonderful push to say, you know, we all want to give compassion and we all want to treat these animals and have them have the least amount of stress as possible in the veterinary industry. There isn't anyone who comes into Mm. this industry going, you know what, all I want animals to do is be completely stressed out. That's not a thing. So now we have started to really do a deep dive into how can we change our behavior to make Mm. them less stressed. And in the end, in doing that, it makes you a happier technician and veterinarian because you don't have to stress the animal out as much. And if we can get procedures done with less restraint, them being happier, them not trying to bite us or, or claw mm. us as, as much, um, we're all, it's a win-win situation. So I think that that's been a really big deal. And I, if I could have every veterinary hospital reflect on how they're handling animals, Mm. Oh, it would be amazing. <laughs> and so. it's the, one of the cheapest changes you can make to your yeah. hospital is the fear-free um, adaptations to either handling or to environment. And it's one of my favorite areas too. And I'm forever going off to conferences and just doing like the behavior streams and coming back to my husband who's a vet. And initially he would always be skeptical when I'd be like, I think we should do this or make this change. And he would think it wouldn't make much of a difference, whether it be more use of toweling or pheromones or making little igloos for cats or providing vertical space or whatever it was. He'd be thinking, you can do that, but I don't know how much of a difference it will make. And then he'd be like, oh my God, the cats are so much better since we just spritz them with pheromone and cover them up. I'm like, that's all they want. Bit of privacy, (laughs) bit of pheromone. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree. I'm always skeptical too, because I I have to see it in order to believe it. So at first, I mean, when I, when I went to school, they taught us you had to scruff cats you had to scruff them really hard and um even i remember being in a class that when we were doing a venus blood draw and they said to distract to distract the cat when you've stretched it out on its side and you've got it in this hard scruff you can actually shake the head a little bit and i look back and i think wow how terrifying must that be Mm. for that cat because in that moment that cat must think it's 
it, someone's trying to kill it, right? Because mm. when a predator wants to go after any animal, where do they go? They go for their neck and they shake mm -hmm. them. And here I am holding on to their <laughs> neck, shaking them. Yeah. And I'm wondering why the cat is trying to kill me. I now know. I You look back yeah. with with what seems like, you know, it seems so clear, but yet it was not, right? Because that's how you were taught. And all I can say is I'm really sorry to all the animals that I did harm yeah. restraint to because that's, we just mentally didn't know any better, but yet it was so obvious. I feel like an idiot now. <laughs> so, yeah. But a lot of these practices were just so widely regarded and widespread too. And I have to thank you for, I went to all of your presentations at the 2015 conference and we had only opened our business in 2013 and you helped me with bad or old recommendations that should be replaced with more modern information in your um, don't fling the neonate um, yeah. sections of your yeah. resuscitation <laughs> right. of neonate presentations because we're in a really regional remote area and all my husband knew as a vet was what nurses that he had worked with has, had always done and as you know with cesareans that it's very much nurse-led the resuscitation components the vet sort of hands them off and then it's up to the nurses and so when we first opened I was um, I remember the first cesarean I helped with the nurses were showing me like how to fling them and I was like as an outsider not from the veterinary industry when we first opened I was like what are they doing what what are, yes. are we, is this really <laughs> what I'm supposed to do and I'm grabbing this pink little tiny like minutes old being and like just flinging it I was really horrified when I was sitting in your presentation I was like oh my god this is exactly what we're doing and we're probably causing brain damage and yeah they could fall out and it feels instinctively wrong just the same way that stretching that cat out and shaking its head probably feels wrong but you know we get told by the person in the the white coat authority position like yeah this is what you do this is good for them so you just do it so I love finding out more information and, and better ways to do things. We, since your presentation, when we got back, I actually, we had an oxygen tank prior to that for our anesthetic machine. And so when we got back, we got one of our biggest purchases to date because we'd only been open for, I don't know, a year and a bit, which was an oxygen machine that sort of converts it from, you know, atmospheric and from the little thing of the water canister. And that way we had two outlets so that we could oxygenate the neonates and, um, and have the dam also obviously connected to the oxygen for the anesthetic. Um, and we also just got, you know, bulb syringes and, you know, we, we learned how to run towels back and forth from the dryer and make sure they stayed hot and we we briefed the whole team trained the whole team and since then we just do not ever lose a neonate and it, it's been great yeah that's wonderful to hear but yeah that's where medicine's always evolving right and and you learn because more science comes out more data comes out you know or people question and and that's super important too you can't always accept well this is the way we did things right because medicine's always yeah. evolving and if we don't challenge our knowledge we get complacent and it's not what's best for the pet and it's not what's best for the client or ourselves as well so yeah always always question you know this just doesn't seem right or find some other way to to do it you know i think that's just how we're in a fear-free movement now. Some people were like, this doesn't, we love cats. Why are we grabbing them by their necks, <laughs> stretching them out? And what, is this really the right way to do it? And then in looking at it, you're like, oh, you know, sometimes it's so obvious, but it's not because that's how it's always been done. So questioning is never a bad thing. Ask questions, yeah. right? 
I totally agree. Now, I think we've touched on the next question in a few ways, but how do you look after your mental well-being and prevent compassion fatigue? And if you're feeling overwhelmed about life or work, what do you do? Yeah, this is really important that everybody finds their way to um, deal with stress, right? Because that's really key. And there's healthy ways and then there's unhealthy ways. So, um, you know, there are times where absolutely I might have a drink. Um, I think, you know, alcohol is a depressant. I need to chill out and then I'll go to bed right after. So um, it's it's one of those things. But that's not the best way, right? For me, it's definitely Mm -hmm. running in the woods. I find sanctity in nature and I also do enjoy scuba diving as well. That's a hobby I've taken up in the last couple of years as well. So there's a sense of peace when I, and scuba diving, if anyone does it, it's, I mean, it's fully immersive. And so it's you and nature and there's no, there's no distractions and it's great. There's no cell phones, Mm -hmm. there's no technology. And the same is true when I run in the woods, I don't bring a cell phone. It's me and my dogs and it's wonderful. And the other thing I do is I eat chocolate, a lot of it when I stress out. Um, chocolate it's makes me good so that. happy and it has serotonin yep. increases uptake in there. So you can, you can chalk that up as well, that it will make your serotonin levels increase. So you're happier, but, um, yep. I do, I love chocolate so much. And so I know that when I'm stressed over something, I'll be like, I'm getting a candy bar. I can't deal with this anymore. So I it's have instant, yeah. it's instant fix. I, I, I wish I could it. say that I like running and scuba diving for my, um, to, to fix myself, but I'm, I'm just not one of those people but I totally identify on the chocolate and I actually had to have an intervention with myself yesterday um, (laughs) because it's been quite a stressful time for me uh, just with our business and a few things going on and just gradually bit by bit uh, yesterday I was like no no human can eat this much chocolate (laughs) so I'm just having a little 48 hour breather but then I'll be straight back to it because it is just (laughs) I think it's a nurturing thing to do for yourself it tastes so good I just I definitely miss sugar addict (laughs) so it's not the healthiest of habits um but yeah if I'm if I'm really stressed I will uh, just go for a chocolate bar it's it's fantastic (laughs) I totally agree I think there's nothing wrong with that strategy (laughs) that's good and what do you think is the, air, the main area of our industry that needs attention or improvement? Self-care. Yeah, it definitely. Yeah. And I think, we, I think we have just started to touch upon it in the last couple of years. But we need to figure out a way to survive in this industry. Um, you know, mm. and there's, there's many, I mean, I could go on and on about industry-wide issues, right? Um, you know, at least in the United States, one of the biggest issues that we have that we have to face as a veterinary profession um, is we are 80 to 90% women. And I know that's true uh, in a lot of the other uh you know, areas in the world, but we are 80 to 90% women in most of our veterinary hospitals. And uh, we need to figure out how are we going to support families and also support veterinary um, hospital, right? Because at least in the United States, for our veterinary technicians in particular, it is cheaper to stay home after you have a baby than to come home, yeah. or come back to work because the cost of daycare is unaffordable. Um, it is, mm. it is more than they make, and that's not acceptable. So we need to figure out those issues. We need to do a lot of how are we going to care for the person <laughs> who's working in the veterinary profession, right? Um, I know yep. in the United States, our college veter, our veterinarians, and even our veterinary technicians, but mostly, you know, it really holds true with our veterinarians. They're coming out of school with, you know, sometimes 80 to a hundred thousand 
U.S. dollars in debt? And how can they afford to pay off those student loans? And then, you know, most of them are women. And then five years yeah. into working, they're paying off student loans and they've had a baby. And mm. how are they going to afford now childcare, student loan debt, and be able to afford to work? It's it's a problem that we need to figure out industry-wide. And I don't have that answer, but we need to take better care of our people. We need to take care, better care of ourselves. And and it's just an industry-wide issue. And I don't think it matters what country that you work in this profession. That's yeah. just the reality of it. So how can we support families? How can we support moms? Um, because we need to do that. Daycares. I know that there's there was just a published journal article, and I can't remember, maybe DVM 360, about a veterinary hospital that um, they – are, we're losing so many people to daycare <laughs> that they decided to open up their own daycare and having their employees pay a little bit into the daycare that was on site. And what a huge stress yeah. reliever, right? Because now the moms mm. can go breastfeed the babies during the, their daytime work hours, go see some cases, come right back. Yeah. It's a cheaper, you know, daycare than they could afford to, you know, do on their own. So because the hospital was helping to subsidize the daycare care that was right there um, to some level. So this was a win-win. They didn't lose employees. The moms felt more connected to the children. I don't really know that all the answers because I haven't done the deep dive into the financials. That's for someone way smarter than me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we need to take care of ourselves industry-wide on those social aspects. How can we be in this profession and still maintain a good quality of, of life at home, that work-life balance everybody wants? How can we do that, right? That's a big deal. That's right. I think it's causing a huge brain drain, um, you know, internationally. I know I've heard about this issue in the States and in the UK and in Australia where we're just not retaining our vets because um, as it's the same here for a lot of them. They'll have one or two kids and then all of a sudden it's difficult to come back to work because the hours aren't family friendly and even if you get daycare, you often need um, or, you know, or if they're at school, they often need like a pre-care or a post-care, like other arrangement, because we need people starting really early and finishing late. And like the mental load is huge coming to work and dealing with everything, but then also thinking, oh, who was I meant to get to the doctor this afternoon or who's got soccer this afternoon or, you know, it's, um, it, it's a lot, but yeah, it's not easy to navigate. So yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, it is definitely something we need to figure out. I always joke, and it is a joke, everyone. I'm, I'm not serious, but I always say when they have a baby um, and they say, I don't know if I can afford to come back, I say, well, we do have available cages, and if you would like, yeah. to, bring, <laughs> if you would like to bring your infant, it, I feel like they're not. there's a cage. They can't go anywhere. You can just pop them in there and do your job. So, yeah, other, other than the sneezing cat next to the infant, it's there's no problem whatsoever. <laughs> so I think um, – I think we do need to figure out how can we take care of ourselves as people so that we can then do the best job in veterinary medicine. What does that look like? And it, and that incorporates everything from mental health to, you know, families and how we can be supportive of people having children and what does that look like. And, um, and again, this is where that compassion comes in because I, full disclosure, don't have any human children, only furry children. 
But mm-hmm. in my younger years, when I would have to stay late and work longer hours because the parents had to go pick up their children, I felt very bitter and angry about it. Like, well, that's not fair. Mm-hmm. I don't have kids and I'm the one always being stuck late and I'm the one having to come in because they can't come in because they've got soccer practice or this and that. Yep. But as you get older, you realize that it was it, it's a decision and a choice that everyone makes. And if we are supportive of each other, the business runs better. If I'm bitter and angry mm-hmm. over it, I, I'd much rather have a mom working really hard who has to get out exactly at four or five o'clock PM at night to go be a parent because that's a full-time job than to yeah. be short staffed running around with my head cut off. <laughs> so I, I absolutely yeah. think that that's the right answer in order for us to all have a better quality of life. Because when that mom comes in, she can help out. I am less stressed because I'm not short staffed. And yes, I have to respect Mm. the fact that she's not going home to sit down and drink Starbucks coffee and get her (laughs) nails done. She's working a very hard job being a parent. And that's not a job I I ever wanted. So, um, you know, and then she's exhausted and has to come back the next day, whereas I just go home and deal with my furry children. And um, yeah, yeah, I can drink Starbucks and paint my nails while dealing with them. (laughs) So it's a different lifestyle right we have to support each other that's really key and I think that's nice to 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 acknowledge that that although the mum might not be able to do the staying late or whatever there are so many other shifts that they can do like um everybody kind of has their little area that they can hopefully do and I think that that's the key is finding a good mix and a good balance of people who've got different availabilities and um, and different skill sets and different levels of ability and different um, things they're keen on being a part of or growing or expanding in so just mixing it up and finding your balance of humans and looking after them yeah absolutely we we have to all work together to to help each other and figure this out because it's a everywhere it doesn't matter where you work we all are struggling with the same issues right totally totally it's been so nice chatting to you because um as you've probably gathered from my uh, repeated mentioning of this conference that i saw you at i've long been a fan of yours and in your career as a veterinary technician if you could reach out and thank a mentor who's helped you um who would it be and what would you say Yes. So that would be Nancy Shaffron. And I gather she would probably know that that was going to be the answer. So without question, many years ago, I, um, I reached out to her because I wanted to know more about lecturing. And I'm not really sure why I asked um, about lecturing because I was terrified about it. But there was some small part of me that kind of was interested in knowing how to get involved in that. And at the time, I had published only one article, and it was called The Spleen. It was super boring, but I've always been a writer. I was an editor-in-chief of my high school paper and then editor-in-chief of my college paper. So when I got out of college and after not doing any writing or publishing for a couple of years, it felt abnormal to me. And I was like, I wonder how I can get an article published. So um, I just remember being enthralled with, you know, dogs that were experiencing hemoabdomens from hemangiosarcoma and what is this spleen and um, what exactly does it mean and how can we can take it out and the animal's fine. And so I did a lot of research and wrote this paper on the spleen and it got published um, in a journal and I was ecstatic. And then I remember seeing Nancy lecturing and I saw her a couple times at that point. And I somehow got a hold of her email address and I emailed her and said, you don't know me, but I saw you lecture and 
I am very interested in you know, what's entailed and what's involved. And, you know, I wrote this article. I was super proud of myself. I wrote this one article (laughs) and I think it would be a really interesting lecture. And she shot me down like she should purposely and said, you know, I don't know who you are, uh, but I would, uh, you need to be published a little bit more. And you also probably need to to get a little bit of lecturing experience under your belt. You can't just go and get on a stage at a big conference and start lecturing. And I and I was like, oh, okay. Um, I Well, I didn't know. But the best thing about it is she recommended that I do a case report for the IVEX case report challenge. And she said, why don't you, um, since you're so enthusiastic, I would encourage you to submit for a case report. And so you had to publish an actual um, written case report, which was great because I got me back into writing. And then if you were selected as a finalist, you would go to IVEX, um, and you got to present and it was 15 minute lecture. Uh, and it was a timed event. And then there were five minutes of questions from a panel of judges of which one of them was Nancy. And Mm. so, and there were big, like fancy people on hell, um, actually was there as well Mm. as a judge. And Mm so these were some big caliber people in the industry judging you on your case report. And here I was, Amy in her young twenties, like terrified. Um, (laughs) and I thought, what am I doing? I have no, uh, no business of being up here. Um, but I found a really cool case, published it. She accepted it, um, as a finalist. And then went ahead and went to IVEX and I ended up winning the case report challenge. And so uh, afterwards she came up to me and said, that was really fantastic. I remember you sent me that email. Would you be interested in coming back next year and lecturing um, at IVEX for, for one hour? And I thought I'm going right. to die. I don't know why I'm saying yes to this. So I said <laughs> yes to it, but the whole time I thought this is the most insane Thing. I don't even know what I'm doing right now. Uh, I, my first lecture, I was terrified. I actually memorized the whole thing because <gasps> I did, because I had luckily been tortured as a child by my parents to do theater. And I did not yep. love theater, but I knew that I could memorize the lines in a place that would last yep. an hour, an hour and a half. So I thought, I can memorize this entire thing. And oh I'm, my God. I'm very happy that I did because I remember getting up on stage for my very first lecture, it was the only lecture I had at that conference, being terrified, shaking. Um, she had said to me, don't ever use a pointer until you stop shaking. <laughs> it was good People words of advice know. that I still impart to young speakers today. Like, don't yeah. hold on to a pointer unless you are not shaking. And so yeah. I remember gripping hold of the podium And then I don't remember the first 20 minutes of my lecture because I think I literally passed out in my brain, but luckily (laughs) words were coming out of my mouth. And at some point I remember coming to and having a conscious thought that I am going to survive this lecture. And that is really the whole reason why now I lecture and I have amazing opportunities like to come to Australia and and lecture for you guys. And um, honestly, why I get to do this really super fun podcast with you is because of her words of wisdom. If I never reached out to her, if she never gave me that advice, I don't know that I would be here today because I probably would have just thought it was the craziest thing ever. But she pushed me, she encouraged me and to that, I'm eternally grateful. And I think it's important 
important to find people like that in your life because it's the most, yeah. it's really the smallest thing when someone asks mm. for advice, if you can point them in the right direction, it really is sometimes completely career changing. That's right. And she sort of gave you a chance to step it up and show what she needed to see for you yeah. to be given that next opportunity. And then she delivered with the goods. So, but I'm also kind of thankful to your parents for sending you to do like um, theater because I think it, <laughs> I think that your delivery is particularly interesting. And I, I have to say, I also am from a theater background. And so maybe that's why it gels with me. I'm like, this is so entertaining. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. My parents um, in high school were like, you're going to be involved in this group. And I was like, no. <laughs> and they were like, yes, <laughs> you will do this. Um, yeah. I remember having to sing and dance and I just remember being terrified the whole time and not truly loving it but later it saved me in life so I am I am grateful to them <laughs> that's where you get the razzle dazzle from I've <laughs> no doubt yeah. and I have to thank you um, in turn for inspiring me to write my first um, journal article as well I think I had to do an assignment um, in some part of my studies which was a lit review and so I um, I of course did neonate resuscitation now being obsessed with it after <laughs> seeing great. you speak and then I saw a little ad in the um, AVNJ saying that they were looking for submissions and I was like oh maybe I could turn that um, lit review into an article and I did and it got published and I'll have to send it to you because it's totally inspired by you and seeing you at my first conference in 2015 so um, I do like how um, how we keep being able to to pass on the ways that other people have inspired and um, and mentored us and, and maybe not understanding that we're also in turn doing that to the next group of people coming through so yeah that is exactly what you just said you don't even realize that you're you're making impact so um that's a wonderful story i didn't know that i was making an impact and i think you know it's crazy because you you feel so small in this very big world right and i've i've had yeah. like yourself and that's that's an amazing story and i've had a few other people say you know you've inspired me to do this or that and i just think well i can't even i can't even wrap my head around how i manage to do that for other people. You know, I just think yeah. I look at Nancy and she was just this and still is this like powerhouse of an individual who truly paved the way for veterinary technicians um, and veterinary assistants in, in our, our country. And, um, and I just thought, wow, this, the, just the uh, little words of advice really go a long way. And I think that again, mm -hmm. this goes back to just helping each other and being kind to each other because you don't realize the most simplistic words, how they can change somebody's life. So I'm glad that you love neonatal resuscitation. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, um, and I'll flick you that paper sometime and, um, you can see just how much I loved it. Oh, that's fantastic. I would love to read it. I can't, I'm looking forward to it. So great. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been so nice to have the opportunity to meet you, um, not in the flesh but in the podcast flesh um, after all this time and to hear some amazing words of wisdom and words of advice so thank you so much for your time and I hope the rest of your day is fantastic fantastic thank you so much this was really just enjoyable to do this podcast and thank you it's true honor to have to be on this and participate in it and uh, I'm excited that it's my my voice is going to now be in Australia so I uh, have to listen to my wretched American accent now <laughs> so I appreciate the opportunity opportunity to to uh to be able to do this it was super fun so thank you guys for having me <laughs>
<laughs> not a wretched accent at all. I hope mine hasn't been too. I don't even know what the Australian accent will sound like. To, oh, it's to an beautiful. American, but... Americans love Australian accents. I always joke <laughs> with my international Aussie friends that when you come to America, and so you guys should know this. This is super important. Probably the most important part of this podcast. When you come to America, you can use your Australian accent to get many things for free or upgrades. <laughs> so make sure you use that as an advantage. Ask for upgrades. Ask for things for free. Ask for free drinks ask for a free dessert you'd be surprised because of the accent americans love the australian accent so yeah use it to your advantage i highly recommend that (laughs) if you take nothing away from this podcast use your australian (laughs) accent to your advantage when in the states yes get free stuff from the united states when you come over (laughs) because you have an australian accent that's the key take-home message it has nothing to do with how to help yourself or compassion fatigue or (laughs) nothing like that. very important i think we need to spread this message I do too it is a real thing people think I'm lying and then they come over and they're like oh my gosh this guy gave me a free drink or the bartender added an extra shot in my drink or I got a free dessert or I got an upgraded room because I have an Australian accent I'm like you're welcome this is a real thing over here (laughs) (laughs) well you learn something new with every podcast that's for sure (laughs) yes well thank you so much for having me I really really appreciate it the pleasure's been mine Amy thank you awesome bye Thanks for listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast. To help us make more free episodes, subscribe and leave a review. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Radio Vet Nurse or drop in at radiovetnurse.com.